Hello everybody and welcome to a Kane and Rince interview special extra podcast in your feed. Like the sort of thing we say we do sometimes because we like to. And uh, I'm very excited this morning. It is this morning, Sunday morning. And I'm being joined by the authors of the brand new book, 10 Things Video Games Can Teach Us, parentheses, about life, philosophy and everything. My goodness. Uh, bye. Here are the authors, Jordan Erica Weber and Daniel Griliopoulos. Welcome to Kane and Rince, both of you. Hello. Thank you for having us. Uh, hello. It's good to be here. Hi, hi. Uh, so names probably familiar to many of our listeners. Um, I should uh, actually give full disclosure. Dan, you may not remember this, but you and I actually worked together for a week, four years ago. You were my uh, stand-in editor at BT Games. Oh, my God, was I? That's yeah. astounding. <laughs> um, <laughs> a lot of work. I, I guess I, I, yeah, I've, I've worked for 15 years in games journalism, so I think I'd probably work with everybody eventually. Yeah. But, um, yes, it, I'm sure it was lovely working with you. I hope well, I was kind. You were extremely nice and very supportive at a time when I was going through a massive crisis of confidence and imposter syndrome, and uh, you you said some very nice things. So uh, so I've never forgotten that. But uh, but that said, listeners, ethics in uh, games podcasting uh, neither of us <laughs> uh, stands to benefit anything more than the, than the usual from uh, this interface this morning. Uh, you know, we 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 get some uh, we get an interesting interview. Uh, hopefully, a few people learn about your book. Beyond that, there is nothing tying us together. Okay, I'm like to make that very clear yeah if it helps i don't know who either of these people are no which is astonishing given the circumstances (laughs) at least we've ended up talking extensively about ethics because that's something we can bring up in a bit maybe yeah for sure yeah uh so uh, a little blurb about the book i took this jordan from uh, your website this will hopefully uh, give uh, listeners an idea of uh, what the book's about if they're not already familiar so if you could upload all of your memories into a machine would that machine be you is it possible we're all already artificial intelligences living inside a simulation these sound like questions from a philosophy class but in fact they're from modern popular video games philosophical discussion often uses thought experiments to consider ideas that we can't test in real life and media like books, films and games can make these thought experiments far more accessible to a non-academic audience. Thanks to their interactive nature, video games can be especially effective ways to explore these ideas. And each chapter of this book introduces a philosophical topic through discussion of relevant video games with interviews with game creators and expert philosophers. Yeah, so uh, I should also say uh, that uh, as a graduate of that uh, failing university uh, university of life mate um i'm, I'm poorly educated uh, and i've never done any study into academic study into into the works of philosophers i i think i can sound smart on uh, on video games on our podcast smartish uh so so uh, yeah honestly i've been a bit nervous talking to uh, about talking to two uh, philosophy graduates about this um very i i guess i don't want to say challenging because that that could be off-putting people might think it's inaccessible but it but there is uh there's some serious uh there's some serious stuff in there from which we can learn first question i suppose an unusual sort of collaboration in that as i understand it you both wrote half a book <laughs> what's the more usual way of doing it i don't know writing in the same room together coming up with phrases and sentences between you 
this is mm-hmm. like a 50 50 i don't split. think we ever would have finished it then no sure right <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, there, there would have been a lot of uh, discussions and not much content i think produced that way i often think that about uh, such collaborations when when i hear about comedy writers and things and and you do wonder if it always t- tends uh, tends to be a bit of a compromise so at least this way there's no uh you know you don't have to c- compromise you're both writing your own your your pieces but how does how did you you must have had an enormous amount of conversation about tying the concepts and the and the pieces that you were covering together well here's the secret dan and i we don't know everything about philosophy um <laughs> we both <laughs> we both studied completely separate areas really um i hope dan won't mind me saying but he went to <laughs> oxford and i went to warwick so mm-hmm. very different kinds of universities um <laughs> and i studied mostly modern um kind of analytic philosophy whereas dan who is slightly older than me did <laughs> <laughs> the the kind I of could, I could be your father stuff. let's be fair <laughs> i mean not quite not quite <laughs> uh, yeah yes uh, i kind of i think when we were first talking about the book it kind of emerged i think it was in, in the bar where we first met to talk uh, just happened to bump into each other discovered a joint love of philosophy and discovered a, a crossover in our interests uh, it emerged during that conversation that i'd only really studied up to about the 18th century so I'd kind of my my philosophical knowledge kind of stops with uh, David Hume, mm-hmm. and Jordan kind of started at that point. So I was good, very mm. good on like Plato and Aristotle um, and Leibniz and Spinoza, and Jordan is great on whoever the modern people are or I know nothing about. They're all called David. Yeah, Chalmers. They're all called like David that. something. David That's... Lewis. David Chalmers. <laughs> David Nietzsche. Uh, all the <laughs> all the Davids. Um, yeah, so uh, that was my next question. Really, did you have, uh, did you both have this similar idea separately before you happened to meet in in this bar, um, or, or was it purely out of these conversations between you that you felt there was something something to uh, to to go on here? Well, the book began really when I think it was in 2013. I overheard Dan at a party, as he said, telling somebody that he was thinking of writing a book about philosophy and video games, and I panicked because it was an idea that I had also had uh-huh. separately yeah. and kind of put away for that. Oh, that's a thing I'll do in the future. Mm. And I thought, oh, damn, he's going to beat me to it. But thankfully, he offered um, that we could write it together. Since we studied completely separate areas of philosophy, yeah. it worked out quite nicely. Yeah, it's beautiful uh, uh, serendipity and synchronicity and all that good stuff. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so um, did you proofread and sub-edit one another's uh, contributions or did you have third parties for that sort of stuff? Uh, both is the answer. Yeah. I, <laughs> when I went through Dan's chapters, so towards the end of the project, we um, we spent, I think, a few days in the library in London together, didn't we, and kind of swapped over. I didn't really understand a lot of the stuff that that Dan knows a lot about. So my contribution to going through his chapters was kind of underlining line words and saying, I don't know what this word means. <laughs> and Dan going, oh, the young people, <laughs> they don't know anything. Uh, uh, yeah, and just going through Jordan's chapters and almost identical things, really. I, I mean, I think when we say we didn't study each other's topics, there is a crossover because every yeah. Every area of philosophy is naturally connected. You know, to talk about ethics, you need to talk about politics, you need to talk about metaphysics, you need to talk about identity. And these are bits all linked together. So we do, even though being wonderfully British and humble, we do know about each other's areas. We can talk about them with authority. It's just that the other person is much more of an expert and has spoken to the developers and the philosophers who are experts 
Um, that's a good way of putting it. So yes, I, I read over Jordan's chapters and similarly went through and went, I don't know what this means. Um, and we <laughs> went through and cleaned it all up. And then after that, I think we um, we had a pass from a, uh, a sub-editor and a proofreader from the publisher who cleaned everything up for us. It's difficult to tell on the sub-editor's part whether they understood least the philosophy part or the games part. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that's always a problem with, uh, with, with, with a niche book on a single subject, but when you're kind of covering two... Uh, two two of these things yeah that's a, a, a double issue i remember yeah. we had an argument about whether to capitalize the races in the mass effect game <laughs> ah yeah no you should surely they're proper nouns uh, I would and I they're not capitalized by bioware oh okay hmm. but the mm-hmm. sub-editor did insist because nobody would be able to follow it otherwise i yeah, think there is that i think jordan said that video games are two words rather than one word ah. and, and i just went okay whatever fine that's easy Yes, this is something that comes <laughs> up a lot. That's what it says in the Guardian style guide. It does, <laughs> yes. Um, we that was the one area, in fact, uh, the the last the the style guide that I worked from at BT Games, funnily enough, was uh, mm-hmm. was said very similar to uh, the Guardian style guide. But we, uh, Ian Dransfield, the editor there, and I flew in the face of that by uh, by uh, making a portmanteau out of video games, and I've stuck with that ever since. Um, so yeah, I'm flying in the face of, of the two words thing. I don't think it matters though, really. Let's just call them simulations. It's much more accurate and more interesting and less history and legacy and nastiness about assuming that they're only for children and that's a, that's that they're evil and, and they're full of violence. You know. <clears throat> yes, and uh, and it makes me think of the Codemasters range of, of simulators, which always makes me happy. Um, <laughs> yeah, So, and I suppose the other thing about uh, working in the way that you did with, uh, Dan, your, your expertise being earlier, I suppose by the very nature of, uh, of time and philosophy, the stuff where you're an expert Jordan is it was a lot of it was informed by those by the the findings and and thinkings of those earlier philosophers I suppose so I mean all of philosophy kind of grabs from other parts but interestingly my stuff is the front of the book the kind of introductory chapters Mm. um whereas Dan's comes afterwards which I suppose now that I think about it probably would have thought it would have gone chronologically yeah I think we tried um, we think we tried to do it originally because we had several different ways it was laid out and if I kept rearranging the chapters I seem to remember um and (laughs) at at some point it was all chronological and the problem is is that the chapters cover several philosophers so it didn't make much sense and then when i rearranged it it just fell into this pattern because we were kind the argument i guess at the beginning of the book is that um that this is a rational way of understanding how philosophy works that you move from what the basics are to what we actually know to what virtual reality is in that context and then then on to what what it means to have a mind and what that means to be the same mind over time and then we get on to moral questions once you've established a kind of core basic assumptions of, of what a person is and what it is to act like a human being and why those are valuable things. Then you can talk about morals and politics and what a good person looks like and killing good people and bad people and that kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, so one more question about the book. Tell us about Louisa and Maria or the, the Louisa and Maria <laughs> device, as I like to refer to it. This was literally, I think, uh, there's a book called Girdle Escher Back, I think by Hofstadter, mm-hmm. which is a book that pulls together the philosophy of, um, uh, well, kind of Kurt Girdle, who was a person who came up with the incompleteness theorem. It goes, it takes from the philosophy of three people who weren't philosophers, really, to explain mm-hmm. philosophy. And um, it's Kurt Girdle, Escher the artist, and Bach the musician. It kind of weaves together 
their music, art, and mathematics to explain something about philosophy. And it uses a device which has been used by philosophers since Plato's time, which is a dialogue. And the dialogue is a way of, through conversation, through two people or more talking, explaining philosophical ideas, challenging those ideas, because essentially that's how ideas in philosophy did get discussed and do get discussed, that somebody proposes something and somebody else proposes a counterexample, that whole syllogism, logical structure that Aristotle came up with. Uh, and it's that, so those dialogues have been going on for at least three or 4,000 years. Mm. Um, so that's, that's kind of what we have here. We have Louise and Maria, who are rough analogues of characters you may know from other popular video game media mm. um, that possibly gender swapped, who are explaining those uh, chapters to you ahead of time. Ha, huh. I hadn't actually, I hadn't actually spotted that, uh, that name gag, but uh, now I see. It. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I think I, I actually think I haven't had time to read the book absolutely cover to cover. Um, but I did, I think the, um, the, that device was really well judged and pitched and really helped me as somebody who might find uh, the, the topics intimidating. If I just saw a list of uh, names that I've, I've heard you know, smarter people than I invoke mm -hmm. when talking about things, um, to have something like that to kind of bring, bring me in is, um, yeah, I, I think it's a, a, an excellent idea personally. Um, definitely a smart move. Um, thank you very much. And, uh, that was entirely Dan. Was it? Did you see, that <laughs> that was, has nothing to do with it. My, my, my prejudice. I saw the names Louisa and Maria and assumed that that would have been more you, Jordan, but that is totally my, my issue there. <laughs> Uh, making the I think connection. the gender swap was probably inspired by me, wasn't it, Dan? I think we always joke that I've got more female brain, you've got more male brain anyway. So <laughs> this, this is, <laughs> it, it, it almost certainly would have been inspired by you telling me we needed to be more uh, egalitarian. Good stuff. Mm. Uh, and uh, one more thing, you 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 implied in in the virtual green room, as we like to call it, before we started uh, talking officially, uh, that this book was a breeze to make, right? Breeze to write <laughs> together. Uh, well, it wasn't in any way a challenge, uh, and it just all fell in your lap, and here we are. Well, as I well, said, it started in 2013, so it's been quite a long road. Uh -huh. Would you yeah, say the road I, I has been uh, a smooth path? <laughs> what do you think, Dad? I, I'm pretty broken. I think. <laughs> I think. Wow. After, after, I think. I, I think we wrote the first chapter. I think they wrote the first chapter before I even met uh, Jordan, as a kind of half the first chapter was a test chapter, yeah. which was about the virtue ethics and Ultima. Um, and I think that first chapter took maybe three years to draft wow. <laughs> to get it absolutely into the right kind of format. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, yeah I, I think at the end of a, God, what is it now, four or five year process where um, I, I, I pretty don't, I don't need to write another book for a little while. What do you say, Jordan? I'm never writing a book ever again. <laughs> <laughs> Unless this one does really well. Um yeah, no, so did, if this one does really well, I don't need to write another oh, that's, one. Yeah, good point. Uh, did you? So, did you have a publisher from the off? Hatchet uh, published this just just under a month ago at the time of recording. So it's uh, it's it's pretty it's fresh out there. So I got us a publisher when I went to Rich Stanton's book launch for his book, A Brief History of Video Games. Yeah. I, I think I baked I baked some cakes for Rich and I went along to his book launch and then I accosted his publisher and said, I also have an idea for a book. And he kind of looked very suspicious and was like, mm, OK, OK. Um, but then we emailed him and he actually seemed really, really interested. And we went in to meet him and he got 
more and more interested. I was actually quite surprised. I thought it would be more difficult than it was to right. convince him that it was worth writing. Yeah. Uh, and he said, as long as this doesn't take four years, I'm interested. <laughs> well, <laughs> we actually only got a publisher, I think, at the end of... 2015 okay. and he asked us to write it in nine months and i said no, no uh we'd like a year and then it took us longer than a year um mm. i think we finished it just at the beginning of 2017 actually mm. and the publishing date got pushed back a couple of weeks it was originally supposed to come out on the 3rd of august i think but i think we've done pretty well it must be pretty awesome yeah. to see it out there now on amazon and uh, and wherever else other <laughs> Retailers. I saw it in a shop the other day for the first time. Uh, always a fine moment. I'm reliably informed by my published friends. <laughs> it was quite exciting. Done any signings yet? Uh, I've signed four copies, two in a shop and one from two different friends, which has been very weird. I think yeah. my signature <laughs> looks different in all of them. <laughs> uh, uh, but we're one... having a launch party um, next oh, week, yeah. actually. Okay. So I assume we'll be signing a few more there. I would like to think so. Uh, so one review on Amazon from AJ Hallison. For lovers of games and thinking, this is an absolute must read. From ethics, free will and the meaning of reality, there's a real thrill finding the intersection with the difficult choices Shepard makes in Mass Effect, the procedural generation of Spelunky or the identity problems in Bioshock Infinite. It helps that the chapters are digestible and crucially the writing is crystal clear, especially with some of the more difficult topics. A real treat if you have a passion for games, but probably a real help if you're beginning to study philosophy. Highly recommended. It's not bad, is it? <laughs> that's pretty good. No, that's a yeah. great review. Yeah. So let's We've got eight out of ten in games TM as well. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah, so let's talk a bit about games and what uh, the likes of us listeners might learn from them. So one one of the things that struck me uh, from the book is, as well as discussing the intent of what we might consider more artsy or highbrow games, the kind of games you might expect to find reference to in uh, such a, an intellectual work such as Limbo, Stanley Parable, To the Moon, stuff like that. Uh, the book also muses on AAA blockbusters, retro cutesy platformers and everything else in between uh, to consider what we might learn about the rest of our human existence from games. Um, so perhaps uh, could you tell us about some of the most profound discoveries you've made in what folk might consider the most unlikely of places? I'm not sure I'd call it necessarily profound, but I think my favorite example of philosophy turning up in unexpected places that I like to give is um, any game that has ghosts in it mm. Mm. Um, supports Cartesian dualism. Right. So that's a nice kind of introduction to philosophy. Um, so this idea that the mind is a separate kind of thing from the body and it's made of yes. kind of magical stuff that doesn't mm. exist in space and time, mm. um, which is a belief that obviously lots of people hold. You know, if you believe in the afterlife, then you believe in some kind of dualism. You think that there's a soul that separates from your body at death and kind of floats up to heaven. Um and that was, uh, so in the book, I talk about um, that theory as explained by Descartes, René Descartes, a French philosopher from, mm. you know, several hundred years ago. Mm. Um, and that's quite a nice introduction to philosophical thinking, I think, because people can quite easily wrap their heads around that idea. You know, yeah. whether you believe in spirits and ghosts or whether yeah. you don't, then that puts you in a particular philosophical camp. It's one of the most fundamental uh, things that we decide for or try, attempt to decide for ourselves. And I wonder if there's something in the fact that uh, uh, in, in Mario, the booze cannot, cannot look in the face of their corporeal uh, counterpart. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. And in Spelunky, the ghosts can't really do anything because, you know, non-physical matter has no power mm. over physical stuff. 
Dan, any uh, any such uh, musings on on games that you wouldn't have otherwise thought had such uh, such profound moments in? Uh, I think it's a game from Jordan's chapters which really excited me, which was Soma, um, which I kind of became obsessed with after this book and during the writing of this book because it's um, from Thomas Grip and uh, what's the name of the studio, Jordan? I've forgotten. Uh, Frictional Games. Frictional Games, right. Um, and it, ostensibly it's a horror game where you kind of start as a man in modern day, I think, San Francisco who has uh, has some sort of brain tumour and is being scanned. And then it, when you go to sleep, you wake up and you're in a grim, dark, post-apocalyptic future full of monsters. Um, but despite this, it manages to shoehorn in, not even shoehorn in, make a fundamental part of the story, really interesting discussions and thought experiments about identity, what it is to be human, what counts as a moral being. Um, it's just a really beautiful uh, walkthrough of questions of moral value and of uh, identity and, and humanity. Um, uh, I don't want to go into it too deeply because it's very spoiler heavy to talk about it, why it does those things so well. But yeah. if your listeners are happy for us to do that, we can do. Well, we're covering mm. Soma in our main podcast in a few weeks time. Um, so it will be spoiled then. Um, and <laughs> I, I'm not actually on that one. Uh, I haven't played Soma yet, but uh, but our panel will all complete the game and talk about it. And uh, yeah, we we try to get uh, on our, on our main podcast. We 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 we're analytical both on an academic and a video game sense, but we do sometimes get into uh, into into more uh, thoughtful musings on 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 the human condition and things like that. So it might be relevant. But yeah, no, if you've got anything more to say on that, uh, we can issue a spoiler warning <laughs> here and now. Uh- Okay, well, I, I guess there's an interest. There's lots of interesting elements in Soma because of uh, the way it, the way that you're already transferred. Basically, your mind is already transferred into a new body when you start the game. Um, but at multiple points during the game, you transfer your mind to a new body, or you think you do, but in fact, you copy it across. So there are multiple versions of you existing in the world at any one point. And then there's questions like there was with the Swapper, which is another game Jordan talks about, about what constitutes identity which one of those is the real you does it matter which one of those is the real you um is psychological continuity necessary for the real you um and that that kind of element of uh what it is to be human Mm. gets challenged as well because you're not really in a you kind of start in a human body and gradually as you go along you see more examples of human minds in non-human bodies or parts of human minds in non-human bodies and the entire game ends up eh, i'm not going to go to that spoiler that's a spoiler too far but it's Same. it's it's a really yeah. <laughs> there's a really interesting thought experiment where you have a perfectly preserved human mind in a simulated environment and you are essentially torturing this human mind to get some information out of it <laughs> and it's a really difficult moral question about whether you should continue doing this is this a, a moral thing to be doing considering the reasons you're doing it um and is this a is this thing that you are torturing a human or not considering how easy it is to turn it off and turn it on on the flip side of that uh thinking about co- you know deep content in unlikely places were there any titles which you feel purported to containing big ideas and profound concepts but which actually had little or nothing to say um it's a criticism i've heard leveled at bioshock infinite among others uh, is, is that your finding in any game? <laughs> so Bioshock Infinite was actually, I think, the game that ins- that got me on this path towards right. writing this book. Um, right. I wrote an essay about basically the ending, which 
essentially makes no sense. But if you choose to interpret it in a particular way, then you can um, you can argue that it's a, an argument reductio ad absurdum, as in the ending is supposed to be an absurd conclusion that proves that the premise makes no sense. Right. So the premise that somebody could travel between possible worlds, what would happen if that were true? You'd end up in this absurd situation where someone could kill their own father without killing themselves, which mm. is how the game, obviously, spoiler warnings, probably a bit too late, but how that game ends. Yeah, um, um, when I looked at Bioshock Infinite, more deeply, I found that it had um, quite interesting examples of questions of personal identity in pairings like, so Anna and Elizabeth, obviously the same person, um, but the way that you know that is because they are physically continuous. So you see the physical being that is called Anna become the physical being that is called Elizabeth, mm-hmm. even though Elizabeth doesn't remember being Anna and in philosophy, there are these arguments about what it is that makes you continue being the same person from one moment to the next. Um, is it memory? And if so, why are Anna and Elizabeth the same person if one doesn't remember being the other? Or is it just physical form? And if it's physical form, then how can, for instance, Booker and Comstock be the same person if they're not the same physical person? Um, and questions like that, I think, are really interesting, even if Bioshock Infinite doesn't really make very much sense and even if it's a terrible game in other ways for instance the way i have this race it's probably our most one of if not our most requested game to cover on our on our podcast so yeah you both have philosophy degrees i have not um but i do have a fairly extensive knowledge of video games but would this is the book a good place for me to learn about uh you know classic established philosophers philosophies and their thoughts and ideas Absolutely. I think what we've done is the kind of the hard work of going and getting degrees and filtering out all the stuff that we don't find particularly interesting or that is Mm. difficult to understand. And then applying the basics as we see them through this lens of video games. Mm. If you know a lot about video games and you know nothing about philosophy, this is a great book for you. If you know a lot about philosophy, but nothing about video games, it's also a great book for you. Um, I think we kind of hope that people, young adults and teenagers, maybe with an interest in philosophy, um, would get something out of it. The fact that obviously all young people play video games now. So Mm -hmm. it's a a great medium to kind of explore philosophy through. Um, But yeah, no, definitely. I think it's I think it's pretty introductory. I think it's pretty good for students if you're going into a degree which has an element of philosophy in it um, and you like video games. This is a great way of getting those ideas in your head in an easy way. I mean, when, when I was studying history as a kid, listening to Monty Python, and he had a wonderful song about Oliver Cromwell, which taught me everything I needed to know about Oliver Cromwell's reign. Yeah. Um, and I never forgot, and I always appreciate it. And this is, like, this is the same kind of thing. This is, it, will, it will show you how the entertainment that you love can help you learn the philosophy you're going to be doing for your degree. So if you're a student doing philosophy, this is a book for you. Oh, mm. The argument that we make in the introduction to the book is that so obviously there's this um, method used in philosophical teaching called the thought experiment, which you've probably heard that phrase used before. Yeah. So things like the obvious one is the trolley problem. You know, there's a runaway train. Do you pull a lever so that it runs over just one person instead of five people? That's a thought experiment. And they're used quite a lot in philosophy because you can't really do a lot of real physical experiments because of kind of limitations on what you can actually do in the real world. Um, limitations on ethics and money and things like that. But um, what we've done in the book is we've 
basically just listed a load of thought experiments, but they're all to do with video games instead of these kind of abstract mm -hmm. situations that philosophers normally use. So it's the same kind of process as teaching philosophy, except the examples are a lot more relevant for a particular audience, i.e. Mm. one with an interest in video games. And also because they are interactive, <laughs> that agency gives you investment in the video game. So rather than the thought experiment where you're, you're at your ass while you throw the lever and kill five people, mm. you have to actually press that button in the game. And it mm. may be that you've been invested in the characters you're killing or saving for the entire game. And that makes it a much more realistic thought experiment because you are so invested and you are so emotionally connected, which you would be in real life. Whereas sitting in an auditorium being asked, can you kill five people to save a hundred? You're just going to go, well, yeah, I'm a utilitarian. I'll do that. Or you'll go, I'm a virtue ethicist. I don't want to do an evil thing. So no, they, they, you know, the hundred people can die and the five will live because that doesn't incriminate me. Um, and then you'll get into the into the game like Mass Effect and you have to do the thing. You have to pull that lever and kill a planet to save the universe. Um, and that might be a planet that you really like or it might be a planet of people you hate. <laughs> Whatever the situation is, it gives you that investment that you wouldn't otherwise have. Dan and I have both found ourselves acting against what we thought were our philosophical positions when it came to actually really? making those decisions in video games. Yeah, mm, yeah Dan with yeah. the trolley problem and me with... Um, my thoughts on the philosophy of mind in uh, in Fallout 4, I found myself acting counter to what I thought I believed. Yeah, it's, um, I, you know, we, we've talked a lot. We're currently covering the Witcher series and we, we've talked a lot about um, how video games often split moral choices normally into binary options of one or two things um and normally it, oftentimes you know it's still a case of press x to continue playing game rather than actually any uh, anything else but we've been enjoying uh, how uh, how the witcher 2 in particular and and the witcher 1 actually to an extent um handles uh, committing to various causes uh, and actually making you consider um you know as, as a person the lesser of two evils which i suppose is it's slightly less about philosophy and more about ethics and morals, but I suppose they're uh, interminably intertwined. Well, ethics and morals are part of philosophy, so I think, yes, you're right in that. A fun challenge, if you're, if you're game. Um, we've covered, uh, well, by the end of this year, we'll have covered 300 games uh, or <laughs> series of games on, on Cane and Rinse. Uh, so Gosh, congratulations. <laughs> thank you. We've been going since 2011. Um, yeah, uh, and it's going quite well. And um, I was wondering if I could get you to uh, pick a number between 1 and 300 and we'll see which <laughs> game we covered and then we can see if there's anything that you think we can learn from the game in question. Uh, oh, go... gosh. <laughs> okay. Pick a um... number. Pick a number, 1 to 300. 127. 127. Ah, Metro, Last Light. <laughs> oh, I haven't played that one. Okay. So um, is that is that the, is that the first one in the series? That's the that's the second one after Metro twenty thirty three. So uh, uh, post apocalyptic. Well, there, well, there are questions. There are questions in that about human value. Probably the beginning of the game. <laughs> From what I remember, at the end of the last game, you have to make a choice about spoilers. Um, yep. <laughs> ki killing off another sub a subtype of human. Yes. That um, that is. Uh, what's the best way of describing it? That have kind of superpowers. So they're, they're particularly yeah. strange and mutated, but they the are next level type of thing. Yeah. And it's a question about whether how yeah you know, the questions out about transhumanism are these things still human? Have they moved on? Are they more than human? If they are better than us, <laughs> if they're yeah. more capable than us, what is the 
what, what's our judgment structure for saying that these creatures should be kept, kept alive? If we keep them alive, are they going to make that same judgment structure about us in the future? That, yeah, there's a really horrible choice at the end where you, you have to choose to kill them or not. And I think you have to choose to save them. And I think the second game has made that choice for you. Um, yes, canonically, I, yes. Yeah, canonically, it's made the worst choice you could possibly have made at the end of the first game. <laughs> Um, notoriously Metro 2033 the first game makes you absolutely jump through hoops and uh, find some of the most obscure interactions to actually uh, to continue along certain ethic or moral paths so rather than uh, a game like Infamous where it's like do I feed the people or do I eat all the food myself Uh, (laughs) Metro 2033 does this whole thing where you have to uh, strum a guitar and uh, you know, basically oh, interact yeah. with with all these random items, find various uh, little trinkets hidden in the corners of the world, and only then can you actually um, get the choice between the, as I recall it, the choice between the sort of the the different uh, the different paths, um, which is, a, is is an interesting way of doing it. But it's uh, I imagine it's something that probably something like ninety eight percent of players weren't aware of and missed. <laughs> Uh, oh, pick a number. Uh, pick a number then. Another number. See what other games yeah. we can uh, talk about. Two hundred forty-two. Two four two. That's a recent one. Earlier, uh, no, it was last year. Uh, oh, Alien Isolation. Blimey, that's gonna be a hard one. <laughs> yeah, I think it is. Uh, I also haven't played that one. Well, you could, you've seen Alien, so you've basically <laughs> got the basic you idea. Assume, I, you assume. You <laughs> assume. I might not have I, seen Alien. Oh, okay. I think. Uh, are there not? I only played like a few hours of it, but I seem to remember that, that, that there are uh, robots in the world that are yes. androids that, yes, yes. Are be- that are behaving in particular psychotic ways. And there's probably philosophical questions over whether, uh, to what degree they count as moral actors, to what degree that the people who have created those robots are, you know, are culpable for the actions of the robots and for the action, the way that the robots deal with the alien problem. Um, which is, as far as I remember, by killing everybody else. But um, again, yet another spoiler. <laughs> no, I think that's right. Um, um, yeah, Ridley Scott's always obviously dealt in in these uh, areas with uh, with with Blade Runner and, and Alien, the uh, the replicant type scenario, and and so on and so forth. And there's a whole yeah, there's a whole thing at the end of the much maligned, but I feel uh, misunderstood Alien Three, where uh, where Bishop turns up and he's actually uh, it's debatable whether he's he's real or. Or not, not a real a replicant, not a replicant. That's mm-hmm. Blast Blade Runner. Yeah, I was, so. I was listening to a podcast the other day that spoke mm. about the difference in the androids in the new Alien movie versus the older ones. Yeah. Um, apparently, canonically, kind of in the world of Alien, they decided that they wanted to make robots seem less human mm. um, for mm-hmm. reasons which I guess are to do with people being able to tell them apart. But that's something that I came across when I was doing the chapter on philosophy of mind um, and talking about this theory of mind called functionalism, which is that if something functions like it is a mind, then it is a mind. You know, if it acts the same way as a human mind would, then we can call it a mind, which is where robots come in. Um, But the comparison between the Mass Effect series where you have the Geth, who obviously don't look human, Mm. um, and then the 
Fallout series where you end up with the synths in Fallout 4 who the problem there is that they look human and you can't tell them apart from humans and that causes mm. a, a different load of problems mm. um, so I guess that's kind of tangential but maybe something about that. The Jordan didn't you come down on the you, you come down not on the functionalism side in the end don't you because I'm still a functionalist <laughs> but, but fundamentally I still believe that if it, if it, if it behaves human uh, and it has the, the actions of a human and we can't differentiate it through a Chinese room experiment from a human, then it probably counts as a human. But you, you do. No, I thought, I thought myself. Yeah, no, I thought myself a functionalist. And then in Fallout Four, I ended up siding with the Institute, uh, who made the synths and who treat them basically like tools that they can wipe without any fear of doing anything immoral. They just kind of reset them, which is again that's also explored in the mass effect games when you have the loyalty mission with legion where he gives you the opportunity to either wipe the rogue mm. guest or to kill them um and that's seen as a kind of that's that's a thought experiment about the philosophy of mind you know if you, if like you it, think they're like humans then you would kill them because that's more moral i guess than wiping well, their question. personalities yeah <laughs> i guess that's the question is whether you if they were a human and you had to make that decision, now that you've said you'll do it with something to me that is functionally identical, does that mean if you were capable of wipe, changing a human's mind, wiping a human's mind rather than killing them, you'd rather kill them than change their mind artificially? I think you're supposed to assume that people would rather be killed than to have their personalities wiped away. Like that, that guess, death is yeah. somehow purer and better than having your personality changed against your will yeah i think i go for the personality being changed but that's probably down to a fear of death unless you changed my personality so i didn't scared i wasn't scared of death then that'd be great (laughs) (laughs) but it's also making me think of um uh, deus ex which i think perhaps is a little ham-fisted in in some of its uh, musings but but i but i think it it's interesting in that it it, uh, tackles the transition of uh of humanity into uh augmented humanity or or, yeah cyber humans and i was it made me think of um i I actually i I thought it was pretty cool the way that channel 4 did their paralympics uh promotions by um by showing images of the athletes with 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 their various uh you know pieces of equipment and uh appendages and things Mm -hmm. calling them the superhumans but actually it did make me think you know how far how far might we be away from a situation as depicted in deus ex where people actually start to uh resent um you know partially artificial people if if that's what they if that's how they would see it being enhanced from from us uh useless uh, fleshy meat sacks I think we've already we've already had that with Oscar Pistorius, where the Olympic Committee, when they thought that his yeah. artificial legs were better than human legs, they yeah. wanted to ban him. And I really was like, how do you justify that? Yeah. Because obviously we already have selective advantages. People have advantages of genetic mutations. Like I seem to remember, was it Andrew Pinson had a mutation that meant that when he mm. is the, the British row, that when he rode, his he could keep going through when anaerobically respiring much longer than normal human. His body yeah. didn't suffer as much as it should have done. So he had a tremendous endless stamina. Yeah. So that is a mutation where you go, well, he's already got a huge hmm. advantage over other humans. He's already a superhuman. Yeah. So, but that's only... You know, he's not a superhuman because uh, because he's suddenly got some extra augmentation. He's just part of a continuity of mutations. We're all mutated and yeah. altered in certain ways, and we all come from that base. And then it's the whole question about what the freaking point of the Olympics is. 
if, why are we giving these people prizes for something that's just kind of inherent in them or that they've acquired from their environment over the course of their life? And then you get questions about free will. If we basically saying we value these people because they've worked really hard using the materials they've got, then there's questions about um, if if we're in a, cause, a causative universe and we're, it's a deterministic universe, how can we justify giving these people any extra credit because they had no agency in their creation of the creation of the organism that won this prize um coming back to transhumanism i hate to bring up the patriarchy again but uh, i think there are definitely (laughs) there are definitely groups out there who resent women for augmenting their bodies artificially to prevent pregnancy so women who use the pill women who use the coil stuff like that that's that can be seen as some kind of um Mm. artificial augmentation right and there are people who resent meddling with god or nature and um and ironically these are probably some of the same people who would uh, who would celebrate augmentation of women in other areas you mean breast implants yes. <laughs> breast implants or or lip you know collagen or or uh, botox you know whatever anything that um that, that, that those people might consider uh, was uh, yeah use a useful tool in making women more attractive to them mm-hmm. um would would be would be something that they might not have a, such a problem with as uh, yeah, as uh, as contraception. Mm. That's not something I think that has been tackled in a video game. Uh, so to conclude, <laughs> give me one more number and uh, we'll see uh, if we can learn one more thing from video games before we finish. I, I have a random number generator here. Oh, okay, go for it. 43. I wanted to go for a small one. <laughs> 43. Back in 2012, we covered uh, Kirby's Epic Yarn. <laughs> Never played it, Jordan. This is all on you. <laughs> oh, I also haven't played that game, but I think I probably should. It seems like I would love it. Um, it's a okay. So Kirby's thing is that he swallows people and then adopts their personality. Correct. <laughs> There's probably something there, Dan. What do you think? I think about continuity of identity and physical contingency and all that stuff. I mean, that's an easy one from from that description. Is Kirby I'm very still curious Kirby? as to philosophical discussions around the new Mario game, mm. where he throws Cappy, Cappy the Cap, at mm-hmm. things and then becomes them. Mm. And what? Where is Mario's? Where is Mario? Where is his identity? Is it inside the cap? What happens to the the animals and other creatures when he stops controlling them? What happens to them while he's controlling them? Where do they go? Do they kind of share space inside the organism? Where, where does sorry? Where does Mario go when he throws the hat? Because so he goes inside the hat. The hat. He like so disappears you... inside the hat, and then he becomes the dinosaur or whatever. How does he throw a hat? I mean, physically, just to, even not even philosophically. <laughs> how does he throw a hat and then jump into it? That's in, Okay, never mind. <laughs> Nintendo animation genius, uh, yeah, and I true. imagine that the uh, yeah the 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 crass answer to I, I'm guessing because I haven't seen it yet and I cannot wait. It's only a month away till Mario Odyssey. Um, I imagine when he pops out of the whatever he's possessed, uh, I imagine it does a little confused animation, perhaps with cross <laughs> eyes, and then just carries on waddling about on its own path, or possibly, m- perhaps more interestingly, it disappears and returns to where it was before. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's going to be interesting to see, like, if you do possess something massive in Odyssey, like like the the much vaunted uh, Tyrannosaur, and then you, you know, I mean, obviously, Nintendo's design is going to be such that it's only going to let you go to places that it can mm-hmm. handle you being in with such a large, um, you know, sprite or, or yeah, uh, avatar. 
or whatever. But um, yeah, I imagine that people will break this game in interesting ways. Um, but no doubt Nintendo's designers have thought of every, everything. <laughs> It'll be a game that we'll see, perhaps perhaps see some fascinating speedruns of. But, but Kirby, Kirby, I have no idea about. <laughs> Would you like us to do another number or shall we stop there? Uh, I'll go on then, one more. 15. It was a non-game podcast, interestingly. The next one was number 17, which was uh, Halo Combat Evolved. Hmm. Any ideas, Jordan? Halo. I've only played Halo 3. I don't remember anything Same particularly deal, really. philosophical about it. Um, no, I mean, no. there's Cortana. Cortana whether, as an AI. True. Whether she's uh, a moral actor, whether she's valuable. Um, there's questions about the many. Um, again, um, about you know organisms that are, that take your mind if you become part of a larger gestalt organism are you still you how much are the identities preserved by that kind of thing there's questions about religion with the covenant that's like, true um if, if religions are kind of evolutionary moral structures um the covenant is just a particularly efficient one of those is that is that a good society to be in as a whole you know we've got whole political questions about things like papers please which feed into that um you know, if if, a, if the person in the covenant, I think it was in Halo two or three. It's Halo two where you're playing as the the arbiter, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. So by Halo three, the covenants become is a still a a uh, hegemonizing religious organization um, determined to destroy the Halos. I mm. think with good reason, but they are yeah. There's a question about with is that a good a good political structure and society for the universe to be running lots of societies. Um, mm. So yeah, lots of questions about that one. Amazing stuff. Well, I'll let you off the hook with with that. Uh, so, thank you again both for joining me. Do you uh, either of you have anything else to say to our listeners about uh, about your book? Ten things video games can teach us. Only that you should definitely buy it. <laughs> and if and you meet willing... us, we will sign it. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say just that it willing it, that video games should increase your moral reasoning. Um, yeah, there's a whole. I think if you re- you read the beginning of the book, I think early on. Mm. So yeah. that whole quote from Edward Snowden, that uh, that he the reason he did the whistleblowing for, uh, on the NSA mm. to reveal all of the horrible things that they've been doing mm. was because he'd been playing lots of Tekken <laughs> of all the games, yeah. um, and that he saw that video games had taught him that ordinary people um, faced with huge injustices from powerful forces beyond their control have a choice to fight or flee and that they teach you that ordinary people can win if they're sufficiently resolute uh, over the most the most formidable adversary. So yeah, uh, games are moral vectors and that so many more games are about sort of small people growing and developing and defeating villains and corporations and all of these things that we regard as evil in the world that yeah this that you should play games you should play games and they'll make moral apart from doom which will not <laughs> absolutely brilliant thank you for that uh yeah and thank you for joining me jordan eric weber and daniel Greliopoulos. Thank, thank you, you.